Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. This is my wallet. This is where I keep my credit cards, my driver's permit, and a little bit of cash. And it's a war zone. It is under attack. You cannot see the enemy, but the enemy is at this wallet. It's at your wallet. And the enemy is called inflation. It is reducing the purchasing power of our dollars. And to explain it, Linda Gasparello, the co-host of the program, and myself have invited Jared Hazelton, an economist who lives in Rhode Island and who has been on the program before. And we love having him on because he reduces the complexities of economics to terms that you and I can understand. Jared, welcome to the broadcast. And why are we wrecked by inflation? Thank you, Llewellyn. It's good to be here. So basically what inflation is, is it's the rate of price increases over a period of time. Uh, there's two basic measurements for it. Uh, one, you could do a year over year rate. And two, you could do a month over month rate. So right now we're in a rate of inflation that's not unprecedented, but it's very high. So I think September's figure came in around 8.1% year over year, uh, thereabouts. Without food and energy prices, we're still about 6.6% increase. Now, it's important to distinguish that that's a year over year increase. The month over month increase was much less. It was a 0.4% increase. So in other words, prices aren't increasing 8% monthly. That's 8% from last year's price. And so... There's a bunch of factors that cause inflation. Um, if you want to look at the textbook factors, you have a demand pull scenario where production, or I'm sorry, where demand exceeds production. Uh, you have a cost push scenario where production costs push price increases. And then you have a built-in inflation scenario where prices are increasing and wages are increasing at the same time. And this period is kind of all three. So there's four major factors for this. It started in early in the pandemic where people got locked down and purchasing switched to consumer goods from services in a, at a very rapid rate. Uh, supply chain issues and transportation issues caused shortages. Uh, so people were purchasing well ahead of current needs, uh, toilet paper being the perfect example that we all probably remember from 2020. You know, you need maybe 10 rolls in the house. People were buying 50, 60, 70 at a clip. Uh, not only does that reduce the supply, but that also in turn increases the price. Uh, supply chain issues throughout the manufacturing chain also led to production cost increases, uh, lack of availability for raw materials, and that all leads to further price increases. Uh, all of this has been exacerbated greatly back in late February, early March, when Russia decided to invade Ukraine. Um, again, that put a huge kink in the global supply chain. Russia is a major supplier of a lot of commodities. Uh, there's nickel coming out of there, there's foodstuffs, uh, all sorts of raw materials. Ukraine is also a major supplier. They're 11.5% of the world's global wheat production, almost 17 or 18% of the world's corn production. So a lot of food comes out of Ukraine. Uh, it's impacting Europe at a higher rate than the North America, but we're definitely feeling the pain. The pain is very apparent. You feel it at the gas pump, you feel it in the grocery store. How long can we expect this to go on? 
uh, in my very humble mathematical abilities, which are really not very good, that if you have 8% a year in less than 10 years, the price of everything is at least double. True, but if we look back at prices in the 1970s, a cup of coffee was 25 cents. So, I mean, this is just gonna happen over time. But there's two schools of thought for this 8% inflation rate is that one is that it's permanent and two are persistent, which is just another word that economists use for permanent. And two, that it's transitory, meaning all the issues that are affecting us right now are kind of a time and place and they'll kind of ameliorate over time and we won't have as high inflation going forward. Um, there's, there's a lot of debate as to what we're actually experiencing now. I'm, I'm, just think, I'm just thinking that the Federal Reserve is using rate increases as a way to tame inflation. Right. Do you think that they should have begun raising these rates a lot earlier? Uh, so the Fed's target inflation rate over an historic period of time is 2%. Obviously, we're well over that. Uh, they're raising rates at an unprecedented rate. They're raising rates faster than at any other time in history. Uh, the late 80s was the second closest time period where they raised rates you know, almost as quickly as, as they're raising them now. They basically just don't want to go back to a period of high inflation like we saw during the 70s. Um, their whole monetary maneuvering is based on increasing the rate to curb the costs or curb prices and to, um, unfortunately, it's going to increase unemployment. And that's effectively how they're going to curb inflation. Uh, to them, the greater pain is inflation, and we can tolerate some sort of unemployment pain in the meantime to get there. Uh, at their current rate of increase, they're targeting mid-2025 or so to get back to a 2 to 4% inflationary rate. How long is this likely to take? When, when is the medicine likely to kick in? The effect is fairly immediate. You can see a couple things right now happening. Anyone who has a variable rate on their loan is definitely being impacted. So prices for cars, prices for homes, et cetera, they're going to come down more quickly. Um, we've already seen a decline in, in food and energy costs. Oil is coming down. Food has come down about 10% in the last couple of months. This obviously has nothing to do with interest rates, but it could be part of that transitory issue. Um, they would like to see it happen quicker, but they're pushing rates as quickly as possible in order to see this take effect as immediately as possible. You know, Jared, despite the, the rising rates, uh, consumer confidence has really been climbing. How is, this is a challenge actually for the Federal Reserve uh, to address a strong economy. Uh, how are they gonna do this and rein in inflation at the same time? Absolutely. I mean, we, we have employment, unemployment rate at just over 3% right now. Um, a lot of economists target a rate of about 7% unemployment in order to get inflation down to 2%, uh, which kind of just, there's a philosophical argument there is what's the public more likely to, uh, to tolerate? Is it a 7% unemployment rate and lower of prices? Or is the the price increase is just going to be baked into the fact that we have a very strong economy, very strong consumer confidence, and actually we have a very strong period of wage growth. Uh, the median wage growth annualized right now is about 7%, so it's almost keeping pace with inflation. Um, the unfortunate thing is for lower income households, that's not true. 
we are only seeing a, a real wage hourly earnings loss of almost 3.6% for lower income households. So it's hurting them at a much greater rate than the median household. We also see instability in the labor market in the form of strikes. We have not seen them in a long time. We've just avoided, or at least temporarily avoided, a large rail strike, which would devastate the economy. Uh, and Britain, which had been pretty well strike-free since the days of Margaret Thatcher, has a rash of strikes. This is, these come along with inflation because the unions feel they are losing place, that mm -hmm. their members are losing money, that the wages are not rising in tandem with inflation, and they wanted to rise in tandem or even to surpass inflation. That creates a lot of instability in the economy, does it not? Absolutely. And uh, this goes back to about 1979 when there is a huge uh, spread in production versus wage growth. Um, since 1979, production has increased about 61.8%, whereas real wages have only increased about 17.5%. And this is very apparent throughout the economy. Uh, this mostly impacts the uh, bottom 80% of wage earners, which obviously is most people. Um, the excess capacity, uh, production capacity in, is not going into salaries. It's going into corporate and executive administrative costs, and it's going into shareholders. So there's a lot of um, perceived aggravation at this disparity. And yes, of course, there's strikes. Um, when people see corporations possibly price gouging and they think if you're making record profits, why am I not seeing that increase in my pocket? I think also the very high salaries that public company executives pay to themselves, salaries of a north of $20 million a year, I think this has a very detrimental impact in the working people of that company who feel why should why should the chief executive get such a disproportionately large amount of money compared to themselves? Right. And I mean, that that's a huge problem. And one of the factors there that we have to remember is it's not necessarily their salary that's that's large. It's the shares that they're getting paid in. So they may have a salary of, of two to three hundred thousand dollars, but a package overall of six to ten million in shares. So their whole they're being forced to look more at the share price than they are at the actual company or the, the labor that they're, you know, trying to, to pay. Um, so one of the problems there is that how do we get away from this, you know, short-term look on the next quarter's profits in order for the share value to go up so that the executives can make money versus, you know, running your company for the long-term five to 10-year time frame and paying your workers equitably? Well, it's largely believed that we cannot afford to play the long game at the corporate level, uh, which is when you translate that into international relations has huge consequences. China playing the long game and ourselves playing the quarterly game. Uh, we would probably not have transferred as much manufacturing and as much know-how, as much technology to China, had we not been so driven by short-term profit and by the immediate reward as opposed to the long-term reward or the long-term stability and durability of a company and its products. Absolutely. And ironically, one of the impacts of, of the short-term inflation that we're experiencing now could be 
a return of manufacturing to the United States, not because uh, just solely shipping and transportation and logistical issues, but also because right now manufacturing in Europe is so expensive because of energy costs. Inflation in the Eurozone is over 12% versus here it's eight. So a lot of producers there are shutting down or transferring capacity to their North American counterparts. So we may actually benefit from this round of inflation, medium to long-term, even though the short-term pain is here. This is going to be a very different return to manufacturing, isn't it? We're not going to see huge factories with thousands and even tens of thousands of uh, workers pouring through the gates uh, at first thing in the morning and out at night or in shifts because we've automated. We have in uh, we have mechanical uh, learning, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence. And these are very apparent on the shop floor. If you go to, into any factory today, uh, you are astounded by how few people there are actually doing things with their hands and how many automated devices are building, welding, packing and shipping goods. Absolutely. I've, I've seen plants that can put out over 1.2 million pounds of metal a year, and there's four employees that can run it if they had to run it on a skeleton crew. Uh, so part of that um, production gap is definitely due to automation or technology, uh, the you know production versus wage growth. But uh, ultimately, I do see the return of manufacturing being in the more high-tech sector. We're looking to build a couple semiconductor plants here that should come online around 2024. Uh, this whole global shakedown is, has really put the fear into us that if we don't have access to something as important as a semiconductor chip domestically, then we can't rely on, you know, some, someone like Taiwan to provide it for us. So a lot of that manufacturing will come back in-house. Uh, the only issue there is raw materials, of course, because we don't have tantalum, we don't have titanium, we don't have some of the, you know, lithium deposits here that are required for that. And a lot of your expertise is in the steel industry. Correct, uh, yes. Um, and I was wondering, what's the future of steel? Are we very dependent on China, for example, uh, in shipping our scrap steel to China? Are we having to find new markets for scrap steel, or are we going to be able to use it domestically? So scrap markets are kind of bifurcated. There's already... Uh, some scrap that's earmarked for export and, and scrap that's earmarked for domestic use. Uh, one of the interesting things in steel that's been going on in the last couple of years and that's going to become a much larger trend is the um, turn towards electric arc furnaces, which consume scrap and away from blast furnaces, which consume coke and coal. So it's a, it's a greener way to do it. It's almost a closed loop. You're taking steel and just making steel with it effectively. Uh, it's very electrical intensive, but it's not, you know, as carbon polluting as coke or coal. But yeah, that's, that's happening at a much larger rate. So one of the things that's actually a concern in the steel industry now is availability of scrap. Because of the increase in EAFs and the interest in going towards this model, um, a lot of major steel producers are, are scrambling to secure long-term scrap supplies. So scrap will be a, a very hard commodity to come by probably long-term. I'd like to get back to the idea of how the Federal Reserve 
is dealing with this economy, which has been fairly resilient. So, uh, you know, I think there is talk of our being in a recession and, and you know, the Federal Reserve uh, uh, chairman had said that we're probably going to definitely go into one in 2023. But the fact is we've been fairly insulated. And one of the things that probably has insulated us is the stimulus packages, which we're still working through right now. I thought, Jerry, you might discuss what the effect of these stimulus packages is still on our economy. Stimulus during the pandemic is still on our economy and how it's, it's, how it's impacting its resiliency. Obviously, putting more money in consumers' pockets will lead to more consumer spending. Um, the issue there is that it's in the long term, it's not a lot of money that's been put into their pockets via these stimulus programs. Uh, however, it's more the shift in what people have been buying since the pandemic. Uh, the quarantine and lockdown shifting to consumer goods away from services, that had a much bigger impact than, than stimulus would have. And if, of course, you know, being in lockdown, not going out, people were able to save. So the stimulus just exacerbated that to the point where people are now sitting on more cash reserves than they have in modern U.S. history. That is true. They're sitting on about $2 trillion worth of reserves in the third quarter. That's right. an it's, change. Right. It's about 10% of U.S. GDP, give or take, which is the highest rate that it's been at. Um, yeah, so so that that's definitely an inflationary factor. Um, however, one of the the res, one of the reasons for that would also be that there has been strong employment and real wage growth of about seven percent. So people just have more money inherently. So we're seeing a little bit of built-in inflation. But getting back to your question on the Fed Reserve rates, one of the other impacts of that could actually be inflationary, as now it's going to cost more for governments to service their debts. So that could actually be an inflationary thing. I, I don't think that's likely to happen, but there is the real risk of that. And that brings us to the subject of deficits and countries formerly fairly conservative uh, with their budgeting are now running deficit. Uh, in fact, we, we seem to almost have forgotten about balanced budgets as national goals. Uh, and nobody's as worried about deficits as they once were. Why has there been this change of attitude? And is it important? Well, the issue of the deficit's a unique thing um, because we are no longer tied to any sort of standard like the gold standard, where back then it absolutely would have been required to, to have some semblance of a balanced budget. Now governments can essentially write their own you know, print their own way out of debt. So servicing that debt just means borrowing against their own larder, so to speak. And they they get to determine what those are. Uh, the risk there, obviously, is um, you can end up in a in a period like with uh, Mugabe in Zimbabwe, where he had trillion dollar notes. Um, another risk, way less likely, hopefully, is like the Weimar Germany, where inflation actually led to fascism. Uh, to some degree, um, you know, the economic pain that people were feeling then just drove them to a party that promised them all sorts of ways out of that. But debt in the US is not as large of a concern as 
people make it out to be, mostly because modern, modern monetary theory states that we have the ability to service our debt as the reserve currency of the world. We have other people buying into our debt. So it's not just on the backs of Americans. Uh, the problem with that is globally, people are starting to reconsider the, the US dollar as the reserve currency. Um, as you might know, most commodities are transacted in US dollars then converted to local currency. Um, and a bunch of Asian countries and Russian countries are, and Saudi Arabia are kind of rethinking that model just for their own preservation. But they've been rethinking it for a long time. I've heard, you know, for 30 years that the dollar may not remain the world's principal reserve currency. It may go the same way that in another generation sterling did. And yet the dollar has remained strong and the world has great confidence in the dollar because they buy our debt in enormous quantities. Every time there's a debt offering by the government, it's snapped up, which uh, suggests that an awful lot of people think that the dollar is still the safest currency. Exactly. And that basically just boils down to a lack of a better alternative right now. So. Um, for decades, we were told that we didn't save enough, that Japan saved more, that, that um, Germany saved more. And the implication was that's why at that time their economies were doing so well. Then Japan just fell away and Germany's having its own troubles now because of energy prices. Um, you're suggesting, or I'm hearing, and possibly I need correction here, that uh, maybe saving is part of the problem. We have all this money sloshing around and people don't know where to put it. Well, it, it, it depends on what you define as the problem because if, if inflation is viewed as public enemy number one, then yeah, savings is a problem because it generates more spending long-term. Ironically, you'd think more saving equals less spending, but if people have cash reserves, they tend to spend more liberally. Um, However, I don't, I don't view inflation as quite the, the specter that, that people think it is, um, especially with rate wages rising and unemployment so low. I fear more about a higher rate environment with more unemployment, uh, because that's going to impact the people that really need help the most. Um, anyone that's living on a variable rate right now is going to be dramatically impacted. Anyone that needs housing right now, um, if you were looking at a house six months ago that was $600,000 at a 3% rate, you can now afford a $400,000, $412,000 house and pay the same monthly mortgage. So it's really going to impact a lot of people um, negatively. And especially if it, if it leads to production costs and layoffs and unemployment, I, I, I don't think inflation is the, the bigger problem. And savings is going to be the only thing that gets some of these people through some tough times ahead. The Republicans are saying that this is all Biden's fault, that President Biden is at fault, that the stimulus is at fault, that mismanagement by Biden and the Biden administration is at fault. Uh, and of course, we expect them to say something like that. Uh, what is the truth of the matter? Would we be in the same place if there were a Republican government? Or do you think they would have taken uh, prophylactic measures earlier. Well, we did have a Republican administration, and what they did was just inflate the debt to levels unseen, even during any other Democratic president. So the spending myth 
that Republicans are better with our wallets is, is just that. It's a myth. Uh, there's, they're spending on both sides, and that's not causing this. It, it basically just boils down to, you know, all individual actors are relatively irrational. And in aggregate, we get these economic models that appear rational. But when you have these world and global shakeups and these supply chain issues and these events that no one in our modern times has lived through, then you have people acting even more irrationally in larger numbers and just driving up prices. Um, we saw the hoarding during the pandemic and, and the problems that caused. Uh, I'm seeing manufacturers ordering six to eight months supplies of raw materials after the invasion to just guarantee supplies. That's drawing, you know, drawing down inventories and that's raising the prices. So there's all these individual and corporate actors that are also doing this that have nothing to do with presidential policies. Day in, day out, we look at the economy through what the market is doing. And yet we're not directly in the market. Most of us are indirectly in it through 401ks and other things. We're not sitting there trading stocks. Um, is the market a poor indicator or a dishonest or deceptive indicator of the actual health of the economy? I think back to a time when the market in Brazil was buoyant, and yet Brazil was in terrible shape. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that a possibility that we look too hard at the Dow Jones average, for example, and ignore the underlying economy? Right. There's a, there's a couple interesting things to unpack there. Um, and I was a former trader. So the one thing I would always do looking at the stock market is just black out the news because it was completely irrelevant. A news story might cause a spike or a crash here and there intraday, but long term, the, the trends aren't usually married to anything you know news driven. I would say it's a very poor indicator of economic health. Um, however, it is correlated to certain things because if the market's crashing, it's correlated to sentiment because people are going to see that and they're going to think there's a recession coming or corporations are going to see this and they're going to see their paychecks going down quarter over quarter and they're going to start laying off. And there's going to be ripple effects from the market that weren't necessarily derived directly from the market itself. So it's it's neither a good nor a bad indicator. It, it just is. Um, generally, over time, it's reflective of economic conditions, but in the month-over-month -month timeframes that we live in, it's a poor indicator. Well, I'd love to hear more about this, and maybe you'll come back and tell us uh, your vision of how these things should be corrected. But for now, we're out of time. Government is out of money. We're out of time. And I have to take my wallet and comfort it because it's having a terrible war fought around it. Although it doesn't seem to know it, but I will know it when I open it and try to buy something. Thank you for coming along. Jared Hazelton, economist extraordinaire. Thank you for being with us. And of course, always Linda, a delight to do a program with you. Until next week, cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.